We're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 10, 16 through 25. We're back in our series after Membership Sunday last week, which was wonderful. But we're back in Matthew now. So if you want to turn there, Matthew 10, starting at verse 16. And once you're there, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the perfect words of God. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are going to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And you can be seated. So we're back in this series, and to remind everyone where we left off the last time, because we did have an interruption here last week in terms of the series, uh, where we last left off was Jesus commissioning the twelve to go out and spread the gospel across Israel before going out to the Gentiles. So the Jewish audience was first, and this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, that the gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And the towns of Israel were to be tested. And if the apostles received a warm welcome, then they stayed there and they they, uh, preached the gospel of Christ uh, until they were done. Uh, But if the town would not have them, if they did not receive a warm welcome, they were to shake their sandals off in judgment, leaving even the very dust of that town behind them, that they carried nothing with it. And because people in the days of Christ are more explicitly rejecting clear revelation of the Messiah than they were in previous days, because the substance has now come, the warning to the unbelieving families and to the unbelieving towns in Israel is that it will be even worse for them who reject the Messiah than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's a challenging passage but I think it's helpful in setting the context for what we're going to read today, particularly one difficult passage here. In verses 16 through 18, we read, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so Jesus has just commissioned the disciples to start their evangelistic preaching mission. And he knew that many would oppose their message. And and we've seen it. Israel had kind of divided itself into four different camps, all of which were somewhat resistant to the gospel in their own unique way. We know well about the Pharisees, who started well as a back-to-the-Bible movement and became ingrown legalists. And we have the Sadducees, who were the theological liberals of their day, who accommodated to everything that the Roman Empire told them they needed to accommodate to. 
And you had the zealots, those people who were into armed revolution, uh, trying to vindicate Israel. And lastly, the Essenes, who were going to be super spiritual and just withdraw from society, not get their hands dirty with any of this worldly stuff, but just to withdraw. And so each group presents its own unique challenges and resistance to the gospel that the apostles are going out with. And Christ knows this. He knows they're going to face resistance in various forms. And so he warns them about being sheep that are going out to wolves. And the picture here reminds us that wolves are always looking for an opportunity to find their next meal. And we're starting, God often starts with the deck stacked against him, and then he makes it worse before going on to victory. So we're already just starting with 12 guys. And in a real sense, Jesus makes them even weaker by dividing them now into groups of two to go out and preach. They're going out in little parties, two by two. Of course they look weak going into a whole village as two men strong. At least from a human standpoint, it looks that way. They will be surrounded by enemies who want to devour and kill them. And the fact that these men are so outnumbered demonstrates the need for Jesus' instructions here that they ought to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And one of the principles of interpreting Scripture is that we let Scripture do the work of interpreting Scripture. We don't bring our own outside ideas and force them into the text. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is one of the most important hermeneutical rules that you can have. And so what are Scriptures and what are doves according to Scripture itself? Well, serpents are often associated with cunning and shrewdness. We read about that in the garden. Uh, the way the, the beast or the way the, the devil presents himself uh, as a serpent. But we also read about serpents in Psalm 58, verses 4 and 5. There's this cunning or this shrewdness that's associated with serpents. But what about doves? Doves are associated with purity, peace, and innocence. And we read about that in the flood account. When God announces peace finally with Noah, he sends that peace in the form of a dove with an olive branch in its mouth. We read about the innocence of doves in Hosea 7:11, And more recently, we read about it in Matthew 3:16 at Jesus' baptism. The peace of God, the Holy Spirit, comes down to Jesus in the form, in the manifestation of a dove. So doves are associated with purity, peace, and innocence. And this should help to demonstrate to us that there is ultimately no contradiction between both being thoughtful and being innocent. And often, too often, we see people who are intentional and very thoughtful and spend much time on strategy or on cunning can fall into a ditch of having sloppy morals and not minding that part of their life adequately. Or on the other side, we see those who tend to be morally upright and morally careful, sometimes leads them to gullibility or to naivety. But the blueprint that Jesus lays down here is that we need to involve both our head and our hearts in our service of him. We need heads that think clearly and hearts that serve gladly. And one way I often picture this, I think too often we picture as you know, when we think about head and heart, how does this relate? And we think of the head at one end of a spectrum and the heart on the other end of a spectrum, and then we kind of have to dial it in where we want to belong on that head versus heart spectrum. That is a very poor and very destructive way to look at this. Why don't we look at this like a feedback loop? Think of it like a steam engine, where this engine is, is roaring hot, and we can all picture these old guys plowing with a 40-bottom plow on a steam engine. 
And that engine is burning hot, 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 and it's craving coal. Feed me coal, feed me coal, feed me coal. And the more coal goes in, the bigger the fire gets. The hotter the fire gets, the more coal it requires. Okay? This is a feedback loop. As we feed our minds with Scripture, as we fill our minds with the doctrines and the teaching of Scripture, as we grow in Bible knowledge, that ought to inflame our heart. Okay? And inflamed hearts are not fed by empty heads. Okay? Inflamed hearts are not fed by empty heads. There must be coal there to feed the flame. Right? There must be something in our minds to feed the flame of our heart. And the deeper and hotter our heart is inflamed, the more we want to get into God's Word. The more we want to feed it. The more we feed it, the hotter it gets. The hotter it gets, the more we feed it. Think of it like a feedback loop where it's just feeding itself. Or to use more biblical imagery of root and fruit. I think the deeper and stronger a root gets, the healthier the plant above ground is. And the more leaf it spreads out, the more sunlight it receives growing a healthier root system. It's this feedback loop. The deeper the root goes, the more fruit we see above the surface. This is how head and heart ought to operate. Okay? This isn't a trade-off where we have to give up so much of one in order to achieve the other. We say yes and amen to both. Hearts on fire, minds that have an insatiable desire to know and to understand Scripture. There's no point in storing up coal or digging a deep root if we're never going to use it. And there's no point in trying to focus on the fruit or the stuff above the surface if we're not going to feed it deep down. Okay? These are both futile without the other. So we say yes and amen to both. And we always need to be aware that there is a ditch on both sides of the road. And each one of us needs to examine which side we personally are in danger of brushing up against. If there's a guardrail on either side of the road, which side am I in danger of brushing up against? Where am I being neglectful? And one of the great deceptions of sin is that we tend to spend almost all of our time, or too much of our time, warning ourselves and others about sins that we are in absolutely no danger of committing and neglecting the ones that are crouching close at hand. We tend to do that lots. The drunk is committed to making sure that he's not going to be seen as one of those self-righteous hypocrites. But here's the problem. He's in no danger of that whatsoever. <laughs> he's got his own sins that need work. Or the self-righteous person who thinks, well, I'm never going to be associated with those people because I don't want to sully my good name. Well, he's in no danger of that particular set of sins. We each have to watch for the sins that we are in danger of committing. And this goes true on a wider scale in the world. How much courage does it take to condemn the sins from other eras and turn a blind eye to the ones that are close at hand? It takes absolutely no courage to denounce the sins of our grandparents. What does take courage is to look at the sins that we are confronted with and to speak prophetically about those. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape talks about this uh, tendency to run to the side of the ship that's actually sinking rather than to the high side and he says that when the basement is flooded, we're all running around with fire extinguishers making sure that we're not in danger of fire. And if the house is on fire, we start running around with torches to warm ourselves because we don't want the house to get cold and wet. Okay? We need to think about the sins that we're actually in danger of and work against that. And that may be different on a, on a personal level. That will be different for each one of us. We need to examine ourselves. And on the broader scale, uh, we need to examine which... Which sins is the church speaking prophetically about? It takes no courage to slam against the legalism of the 1940s and 50s because you know what? We are in almost zero danger of that today. 
Okay? But that will be different for each of us. Let's think about the sins that are crouching close at hand. One of the things that concerns me about the intensity of our current cultural situation is that we do continue to run towards the side of the ship that is sinking. We live in polarized times. And the temptation is always there to believe lies or propaganda or certain bizarre theories, not because they're true, but because they're useful. And this is a temptation for both liberal and conservative-minded people. And assuming, on the whole, that this tends to be a more conservative group, we need to be aware of our own sins that lie close at hand. Are we sharing false reports, false information, if it undergirds our position? Again, not because it's true, but because we find it tactically useful. And we can see why the temptation is there. If we don't have a, a firm grasp of, uh, grasp of what the Bible teaches about the fallen state of man, and we are tempted to assume worldly assumptions that people are basically good, or that people are basically okay, and then we see all the evil in the world around us. We must think it must all be George Soros. Clearly he's got a big enough bank account. There wouldn't be evil in the world if it wasn't for a handful of evil men smoking cigars in some back room pulling the strings of the world. But biblical anthropology tells us of course there's going to be evil in the world. We're sinners from the womb. We hate God from the womb. By nature we're children of wrath. We don't need a small handful of bad guys pulling the strings to account for the evil that is in the world. And that doesn't discount the evil of certain powerful people. But it does say we need to look at what's close at hand. Or we can make the exact opposite error. And that's to assume that whatever time, whatever's around us, whatever we're surrounded by, whatever state the church is in or the world is in or our family is in, we can commit the great sin of assuming that that's normal. Okay? And we think, well, that's, of course it's normal. It's been that way my whole life. Right? My, my whole life we've been into feminism and the sexual revolution and, and socialized everything from cradle to grave. And of course there's government schools and of course, it, because that's all I've ever known, therefore it must be normal. Wrong. Wrong. 80 years is a little tiny snapshot in time that does not dictate normal whatsoever. We may be guilty of many things that are deeply abnormal that if we're not thinking critically, we will start to assume, well, of course that's obvious. Right? Because that's the culture we live in. So this is the kind of the exact opposite error of not having our guard up high enough and thinking about, thinking through what we're seeing with our eyes. And what Christ is advocating here is thinking in terms of what we call a worldview. And that just means that we, what you think about everything is always condensed in what you say about any particular thing. And we are Christians. That means we want to think like Christians all the way down. We want to think like Christians about everything that we are going to confront. And so confronting evil and opposition, as the apostles are warned that they are going to face, should not be surprising in the least bit. Scripture does indeed say that by nature our foolish hearts are darkened and that we are children of wrath. So we don't need some kind of obscure conspiracy to explain bad behavior. It's all around us. It's in the spirit of the age and in books and ideas that are openly available. So this agenda typically isn't hidden, it's out in the open. In men's theology, we've uh, worked through the mission of God, and everything is well footnoted, how ideas have consequences. This isn't some backroom conspiracy stuff. These people write books for everyone to read. These ideas are out in the open, as are our ideas out in the open. 
Everyone wants to turn every situation into something that they think is right. These ideas are out in the open. We need eyes to see it. And we also don't need to take the naive approach that everyone is trying their best or that if everyone just had the right information, then they'd all start acting correctly. Not at all. A similar account to this is given in Luke 16.8, where Jesus, you can kind of almost see him putting his disciples in a headlock and kind of rubbing their heads like, come on guys, smarten up. Where he rebukes them for not understanding the times that they were living in. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And that's a rebuke. That's not just a statement. That's saying, you guys should know better. Unbelievers understand the world they're living in better than you guys do. (laughs) You guys need to start paying attention to what's around you. Start paying attention to your own heart. Jesus is telling his apostles here to be honorable and righteous in their conduct and also to be critical and discerning in their thinking. And this is not an either or. This is a both and. Head and heart. Knowledge and zeal. Truth and love. And if the message of Christ was only about personal forgiveness and about personal ethics, the gospel may indeed have been laughed at. But Jesus, all through the gospel of Matthew, we see it over and over again frames the gospel in the terms of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And this implies a king over all. And this king's rightful crown rights over his entire creation. And this is the announcement that threatens the powers that be. And this is why the apostles should expect to find themselves before courts and before synagogues and kings and governors. We say Jesus is Lord very glibly in our day without really thinking what that means. But to say Jesus is Lord in the first century was a big deal. Because to be a good citizen of the Roman Empire, you had to say, Kaiser ho curios, Caesar is Lord. And the confession, Jesu ho curios, Jesus is Lord, is a direct contradiction. It's a direct attack at Caesar as Lord. Okay? And we have something similar in our own day, which is called secularism. The idea that we can somehow be neutral in the public square when Jesus says, I own it all. So if we see the gospel just in terms of personal piety, everyone's willing to let us be Christians as long as we all acknowledge that in the the real world, out in the open, there we all have to be secular. There Jesus doesn't get a claim. There we're going to be neutral. The announcement that Jesus is Lord is a direct attack on the powers that be both in Rome and today. When we say Jesus is Lord, we need to really mean it. He's Lord of everything. Nothing is exempted. There can be no mandatory ideal or system that stands above the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where persecution comes from. In verses 19 through 22, Jesus says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So although Jesus warns the twelve about what's going to happen to them as they go out preaching, he does not leave them on their own. He promises the helper, and we talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Jesus promises the spirit the helper, the counselor, the paraclete. 
And a further warning is mixed in with the consolation of the Spirit here. And that is that families are going to rise up against one another and betray each other. And this is often what persecution is designed to do. In times of persecution, in times of intense pushback, one of the things that typically happens is atomization, breaking everybody apart, breaking the bonds apart, so that everyone is just their own unique individual. People and communities who should be closely bonded are divided into individuals. And the divide-and-conquer strategy is highly effective. Divided, solitary people are much more easily conquered than strongly bonded little groups. And persecution is designed to tear those bonds apart. Betrayal and backstabbing seem to start to look like they're pretty good options. Once you're in just this everybody's survival of the fittest kind of mindset, it seems like it's an option to betray other people, even family members, for the sake of your own survival. We resort to backstabbing and every man for himself, a mere survival attitude. But Christians cannot give in to this eat-or-be-eaten mentality. Despite the warning that the apostles will be hated because they name the name of Christ, despite the warning about people turning on each other, Jesus reminds them of one of the great truths of the gospel, and that is the truth of perseverance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And the fruit here tells the story of the root. False professors are going to call it quits when it gets too hard, too costly. Fake Christians are going to get caught up in the harsh reality of persecution and will quit. But those who are truly saved, those who truly belong to Christ, will endure. Those who stand fast will move on to their eternal reward. And we can ask ourselves, if we're ever... We've got it pretty easy compared to these guys. But should the day ever come, or should the situation ever come, where you have to make that kind of a decision? Jesus tells you, well, what's the worst they can do to you? What's the worst they can do? Is kill you. That's as bad as it can get. Early promotion. That doesn't sound that bad. And Jesus says that when we zoom ahead a little bit to verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so whatever level of pushback we get, whether it's what we're accustomed to, which is people kind of laughing at us or not taking us very seriously, uh, which is itself its own kind of pressure to compromise, or whether we see or, or, you know, heaven forbid, but one day if we'd ever be in a situation like that, whether here or in a missions context, we need to think, who are we fearing? Are we fearing man or are we fearing God? And we are blessed to live in a place and in an age where the cost to follow Christ has not been particularly high. And it may be that the cost is increasing, but it still is nothing like what it was for the apostles in the first century. But regardless of the time and the place we're in, are we willing to count the cost? Are you willing to be misunderstood? Are you willing to be mocked? If you find yourself in a place where the cost increases to the point of prison time or outright persecution, is the root of the matter in you to persevere? Are we willing to trust Christ and endure all the way to the end regardless of the circumstances we face? Are we willing to trust Christ when we have to count the cost of faithfulness? And how often does Christ turn a significant profit on the trials and tribulations? And that's the way we need to start seeing these things. This is how God does it. We should not expect to get an easy road, an easy path. It was said in the early church, I believe by Tertullian, Uh, as the Christians were being martyred, that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You kill one of us and four more rise up in their place. You kill those four and there's 30 more coming. 
This is how the gospel advances, is through difficulty, through persecution. They can't kill us fast enough. They can't imprison us or silence us fast enough. This is how God always does it. So even if we face significant costs, we shouldn't see this as an ultimate loss or a setback. Gains and advance are frequently made through difficulty. And after Judas kills himself and the 11 are left, we know all but one of them are going to pay the ultimate cost for their allegiance to Christ. But here we are, 2,000 years later, thanks to their faithfulness and to the faithfulness of many people between them and us, here we are with a multitude of Bibles in our own language, resources, missions agencies, church planting agencies, churches across the globe that they never saw in their time. This is how faithfulness works. So even in difficulty, we need to look past our situation to the purposes of God. And everyone in this room is going through their own set of difficult circumstances. There's no question. Are we willing to turn a profit on it? Are we willing to persevere to the end? Are we going to be like the spies who go out and only see giants in the land? Or are we going to be those who see, no, there is a rich yield of milk and honey and fruit there. That's the eyes we need to have, brothers and sisters. Ask yourself, when you're faced with something like Goliath, is he too big to fight? Or is he too big to miss? That's the eyes of faith. What is God doing in this difficult situation? How do we persevere? How do we carry on? And if we don't keep our eyes on the glory of God, we will get caught up in our own circumstances and we are going to have difficulty enduring the the pain and the tension. And to endure, we need a dogged determination. Jonathan Edwards prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That is the vision that we need. What is God eternally purposing to do here? That's how we get through. Don't just look to the end of your nose. What is God accomplishing in and through this situation, in and through my life, in and through these times that we live in, in and through my children and grandchildren? We need to get Romans 8.28 into our bones. And I've said it many times, and I'll say it many more yet, so please don't get bored with this. Romans 8.28 means that there are only two events that can ever happen in your life if you are a Christian. You are either going to receive happy blessings from God, or you are going to receive hard blessings from God. But everything is a blessing from the Lord. Everything is a blessing from the Lord if you are a Christian. Yes, your health problems. Yes, your children problems. Yes, your job loss. Yes, these are blessings from the Lord. Doesn't feel like it. It feels like socks on Christmas morning when you're eight. But it's good for you. It must be good for you. And we need to learn these things when the suffering is not so intense. When we are suffering, when we are struggling, when we are depressed or working through something very complicated, it's a very hard time for us to learn new things under those circumstances. Our task is to learn these things when we feel okay so that we can draw on it when the trouble comes. We need to internalize these things when we are feeling good. Verse 23, Jesus says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns in Israel before the Son of Man comes. If you've ever read a book or seen a list of difficult Bible verses, very often this one is going to be listed among those. It's clear Jesus is talking to his original audience. We should never go straight from a Bible verse right to me, but we need to understand what's happening in the context before we make legitimate application to our own time. So Jesus is clearly talking to his original audience, the 12. 
sending them out to Israel. But then he says that they won't be finished their work before the Son of Man comes. And we hear words like the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord, and our minds automatically go to the final judgment at the end of history. And there's good reason for that. Of course, there is a sense in which the bodily final return of Christ at the end of history does come. That's called the parousia. This is the ultimate final bodily coming of Christ to wrap up history. But if Christ is here referring to that final judgment at the end of history, that day of the Lord, and we're living 2,000 years later and it's still future to us, it doesn't seem to fit the short time frame that's indicated by the context here. That the 12 won't even be done before Christ returns. The 12 won't have had time to get through Israel before the Son of Man comes. And some very high caliber critics of Christianity look at verses like this and say, See, Jesus was wrong about the time of his return. Jesus was not omniscient. Jesus got the second coming wrong. Jesus is a liar. Scripture makes mistakes. Quit believing in Jesus. Okay? People like Bertrand Russell have made that, and more recently Christopher Hitchens have made lots of hay on the supposed idea that Jesus got the timing of the second coming wrong. But we know this cannot be the case. And our minds tend to see this language and we go straight to the second coming at the end of history, but we miss the intermediate steps in the history of redemption if we fast forward all the way to the end without looking at the intermediate steps. So many important things happen before the final return of Christ. And so some suggestions that have been offered about what Jesus means here There's basically three that are looking at the close-up fulfillment of this. One, some would say that this coming refers to his resurrection when he comes back from the dead. One is that he is uh, sending his spirit at Pentecost, and that is the coming that is in view here. And a third view says that this is his coming against Jerusalem in the year AD 70, when he destroys the temple. And there's good reasons why people have picked all of these three different views. But given the context of Christ sending out the twelve to gather in Israel before a judgment comes, and given the similar use of language elsewhere in the Bible, it seems to me that the last option, the destruction of Jerusalem, is probably the best option. There's an urgency that we've seen here to send the apostles out to Israel to gather everybody in because something is very close at hand within the lifetime of Jesus' original audience. And the context for this coming of the Son of Man is set in the context of, of warning about strong persecution against the apostles. And that was, in fact, the setting of the destruction of Jerusalem. And there's no specific persecution that surrounds exactly the resurrection and Pentecost. So there's persecution that's in view both before and after verse 23. And so I think this coming of the Son of Man is referring to that judgment against Jerusalem for her unbelief. And this language is used frequently in Scripture, the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord, to events that are in our history. They're no longer future. They're not looking to the final fulfillment. Um, But we see it in Isaiah 2 and 13 and 31, Ezekiel 13, Joel 1, 2 and 3, Amos 15, Obadiah 1, Zephaniah 1, Zechariah 14, Micah 1, and Malachi 3 and 4. So this isn't a foreign understanding of what a day of the Lord is. There's many days of the Lord in Scripture. Anytime God comes in judgment is a day of the Lord. And so sometimes the prophetic language does point to events close at hand as something foreshadowing something further out. So in one sense, 
all these days of the Lord, all through the Old Testament, have already occurred in the history and in the lifetime of the original audience. And yet, in another sense, can still point to the final day. They're types, so to speak. And so the language does suggest, and I think that this is why we're looking at Christ returning in judgment, and that does fit with what we've seen about Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. <clears throat> and I think this theme, will, uh, we'll see it again in Jesus' own prophecies about things that people in his generation are going to see. Putting it all together, I think when we look at some of this prophetic language inside the New Testament, John the Baptist and Jesus frequently are warning about impending judgment for those who reject the Messiah. And the language is often about a near judgment, a winnowing fork, an axe laid at the root of the tree, the kingdom is at hand. This generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Some of you standing here today won't taste death until these things happen. It seems to be a close-up fulfillment of something significant. And so that's what leads me to that conclusion. You can do more research on that yourself, but this is one of these difficult Bible verses. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus moves on back to the persecution theme. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And these verses continue on with the theme of persecution. If Jesus himself is going to be mocked, mistreated, and martyred, why would we expect any different for ourselves? Jesus is so slandered because they have called him the master of the house of Beelzebul. And that means the prince of demons or the prince of flies, the lord of the flies. They are giving the most grotesque name to the Lord that they can. And in Matthew 12, 24 through 27, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. And they again call him Beelzebul. This is the ultimate form of blasphemy. And Jesus connects this form of blasphemy, of, of ascribing his righteous acts to that of being from Satan, that this is what's connected with the unpardonable sin. And once one is at the place of seeing the Son of Man in real life, keep in mind, these people got to see him face to face. They got to see the Son of Man in real life. He's doing miracles in front of you. And you accuse him of being of the prince of demons? You are at a level of hardening that should be absolutely frightening. And one of the frightening things about it is people who are at this place are not frightened. That is one of the judgments itself, is that people who ought to be most scared generally are not. But if Jesus himself gets this kind of a treatment, why would his servants receive better? We've so many Christians today who are willing to compromise with the spirit of our age. And they assume that if Christians face persecutions, it must be because we're doing something wrong. There's too many examples of Christians who get pushback because they are inconsiderate or belligerent or rude. And we ought never to be those things. But the fact is that not everyone is going to love us. Our message is a direct threat to the spirit of the age. The message of the gospel runs contrary to the fallen human heart. So not all pushback is proof that we are doing something wrong. It may be a sign that we have articulated the gospel clearly enough that nobody's missing it. They understand what's at stake. It could be that you presented the gospel well, 
that's creating the pushback. So we should not be surprised by this, provided we are not being rude or sinful in our attitude or in our actions. Jesus himself got this treatment. And I sometimes wonder when Christians are always surprised and they always blame other Christians when, when people don't like the message as though we, you know, it's always because we're not winsome enough. I always like to do the thought experiment. Would they not have killed Jesus had he been a little more Christ-like? What do we expect? Okay? Christ-likeness is going to get you in trouble at least sometimes. And so to bring it all back, this all makes sense that Jesus tells us we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Having wisdom means that we understand the times that we are in. It means we understand our own hearts. We know how to apply God's law and his gospel to any given situation. And this is going to lead some men to repentance and others to anger. And another way to think about this, the evangelist D.L. Moody once had a great deep theological insight, and that's this. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one you hit. <laughs> Makes sense, right? If you're preaching law and gospel, the people who are most angered by it are the ones you hit. Okay? Don't be rude. Don't have a bad attitude. Don't be belligerent. Preach the gospel, and if they're upset at that, make sure it's that the message that they're upset with. The one that yelps is the one you hit. Let God deal with them in the quiet then and convict them of their sin. Wisdom means that we're going to be intentional and tactical about the target. To swing at everything and anything in our path is not wise or tactical. It's foolish and undisciplined. So we need to be intentional and thoughtful about when and where and how we engage. The Proverbs tells us not to grab any passing dog by the ears. Some things it's okay to just let it go. It's not worth it. And then we need to be innocent as doves. And here's a question we need to ask ourselves again. Does your conduct adorn the gospel of grace? Does your walk match your talk? And how much disrepute comes upon Christ because his most vocal defenders are living undisciplined lives? How many Christian leaders have destroyed their opportunity to speak or to evangelize because of personal scandal? Or on a more personal note, if you or your non-Christian, or if your non-Christian co-workers are known for doing a better job at the workplace than you, how much credibility do you have as an ambassador of Christ? If you win every debate at school or at work, but then your personal morals and devotion to Christ are lacking, you are not being as wise as a serpent, nor are you being as innocent as a dove. If you're witnessing to your teammates and then you go get sloppy with them after the game, you are neither wise nor innocent. You're a fool in both areas. So I want to leave us with the clear instructions here. We should not expect different treatment than our master got. And as we play our part in proclaiming the gospel, we can and should expect pushback and persecution. And in and through all of this, we always need to be thinking sharply and strategically and making sure that our conduct is worthy of the name Christian. We are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your instruction here. I want to thank you uh, that you have warned your followers in every age about opposition, about persecution, uh, about the cost of what it will mean to follow you. Lord, and I pray that however the pushback or however the opposition looks in our own lives, that we would think it through, that we would be strategic, that we would be wise as serpents, understand what's happening, understand what's happening in our own hearts and in the hearts of others, in the spirit of the age around us, 
and then that we would be tactical about how and when and where to push back. Lord, and help us to be innocent as doves. Lord, I pray that we would live lives that will give credibility to your gospel message rather than tear its credibility down. I pray that we would be known as people of holiness and righteousness and people who love deeply you and our fellow person, our fellow man. Lord, help us all as we do that. I pray that we would bring honor to each other's names, but most importantly, honor to your name, that we would be worthy of the name that you have given us as Christian. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're taking communion this morning. And so as we think about that, I want to invite you all, if you are a Christian and you have been baptized in an evangelical church, I want to invite you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'd invite our elders to come up. We do practice open communion here, which means if you are a believer, you're not a member of this church, you are welcome to take communion with us. This is not for small children. This is not for people that are under church discipline or people that have unaddressed sin in their lives. But it is for all those who know Jesus as Lord, who have entered into the kingdom, who have been baptized, and who are actively putting sin to death in their lives. And this is something that we do rejoicingly. We are thankful for God's gift to us in communion and the reminder that it serves. But there's also serious warnings for those who do this unworthily. And so I'll leave a time of quiet prayer uh, in a moment here for us to address those sins. And we'll start with the bread. And it says, In the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's pray silently and then I'll close. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, who gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Through your goodness we receive this bread, which the earth has given and human hands have made, and through your surpassing mercy you have given us the bread of life. Blessed be God forever and ever. Amen. And we'll distribute the bread.
So this bread which we break is communion in the body of Christ. Therefore Jesus gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this as my memorial. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was broken for you. Persevere, preserve your body and soul until everlasting life. Feed on him in your heart by faith and with thanksgiving. And remember that Christ died for you and be thankful. And you can take the bread. In the same manner, also, after supper, Jesus took the cup and gave thanks. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth food from the earth and wine which makes the heart of man glad. Through your goodness we receive this wine, fruit of the vine and work of human hands, and through your surpassing mercy you have given us the blood of your Son. Blessed be God forever and ever. Amen. And we'll distribute the cup. And for those who prefer, there's grape juice in the middle and wine to the outside.
So the cup of blessing that we bless is communion in the blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Therefore, Jesus said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is, my, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you shall drink it as my memorial. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. And you can take the cup. stand. So receive the charge. Knowing that his 
is going to be a life of persecution and martyrdom, Christ warns the twelve that they are going to face the same outcome as their master. If they are going to proclaim law and gospel, wrath and grace, and the lordship of Christ, they can expect to be held over before councils, kings, and governors. They will be tempted to switch to self-preservation mode and avoid trouble by betraying others. And yet this would be proof that they do not have communion with Christ, as Judas' betrayal is going to prove. Endurance across the finish line is the final proof that Christ is ours and we are his. This is what the twelve were called to do, and this is what we are still called to do down to today. As we fulfill this calling, we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. To make Christ truly known, we must understand the scriptures well enough to correctly interpret the world around us and to internalize them deeply enough that we can live a life of heartfelt holiness and integrity and receive the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 4. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it and go in peace.